Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Jonathan Adler, a law professor at Case Western. He writes on environmental law, federalism, and regulation. His 2020 edited volume, Marijuana Federalism, Uncle Sam and Mary Jane, was published by Brookings. Jonathan, thanks for joining me today. Good to be here. So maybe we could start by talking about federalism a little sure. bit. Um, one of the, the funny things uh, that I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed as well, about environmental discourse is that many people's views on federalism shift uh, depending on who is in power in Washington D.C. Uh, you know, when there's a uh, when there's a Republican in the White House, environmentalists are big fans of the states and regulated industry less so, and then that whole dynamic kind of flips uh, when power changes in the White House. Um, but I kind of see you as a, a fairly consistent defender of the states, um, although that you know that's probably a simplification. But that's kind of how I, I think of some of at least some of your work. Um, so I just wonder, kind of just as kind of zooming way out, w- what makes states attractive venues for um, for environmental policy? Sure. So um, yeah, initially you know uh, I certainly try to be. Consistent and, and nice to it's nice to see that that's that that those efforts are, are appreciated. Um, you know, I think when when we think about environmental problems, I, I think we can recognize that different problems uh, occur at different scales, and in a world of scarce resources and um, and that the fact that that scarcity applies to governmental institutions and the political process as well, albeit in in slightly different ways. It seems to me desirable and certainly consistent as well with the United States' constitutional structure to try and have environmental issues dealt with at the level that they occur or at the or as close to the level at which they occur as possible. Um, so I think that's you know a good you know so that the federal government, Insofar as it is able to focus on issues that are transboundary, uh, focus on issues where the states are le- less likely to be competent makes sense. And that um, state and local governments um, dealing with issues that occur mostly at the uh, state and local level or, or local and regional level um, is generally desirable. Um, I think some of the benefits of that are um, one um, – Problems manifest themselves really differently in different places. Uh, one of the very first environmental issues I, 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 I did a lot of work on was um, urban air pollution and, and state implementation plans and the like. And I did some work out in, in Maricopa County, Arizona, where Phoenix is. And, you know, air pollution in Phoenix is very different from, say, Cleveland, where I am now. Um, part of that's a function of geography, much drier climate. Um, uh, in Phoenix. Um, some of it's a function of um, ex- economic factors, um, the nature of industry, the nature of the economic activity that's contributing to the pollution, and so on. And as we make progress on dealing with environmental problems, those differences start to become more important, right? When when you have cars without catalytic converters, okay, those regional differences probably don't matter a lot. But um, when you're talking about um, getting those additional increments of, of pollution reduction, being able to account for those differences, I think, matters. So that's one thing that I, I think uh, is, is important. Second, I think you know, environmental issues are, are not 
merely questions of science. They're questions of values. And values differ from place to place. And priorities differ. Uh, and I think that allowing those value differences to matter um, is is generally a good thing. Um, uh, you know, uh, different parts of the country have have different place different environmental issues at, in di- in different places, kind of in the hierarchy of of policy priorities. Um, another th- reason I like it, and this is one that I know that that you're skeptical of, um, uh, is, is experimentation and learning. Um, environmental issues are hard. Um, there are a lot of things that we've tried in our history as a nation and that we've tried in the environmental policy space that have not always worked as well as we'd want them to, um, or that have created incentives we didn't expect. And, um, I do think that, that, um, one value of experimentation is, is that when experiments fail, and some percentage of them necessarily will, um, your downside risk from that failure is reduced because you're not failing everywhere. Um, and the fact that different places are trying different things generates information about how we can better address uh, environmental problems in a way that's consistent with the other things that we care about. And so those are some of the reasons why, as a policy matter, um, I like decentralization. Now, as a legal matter, sometimes the relevant law and doctrine supports a a, 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 a preference for decentralization uh, or a rebuttable presumption in favor of decentralization. And sometimes it doesn't. Um, um, uh, but I, I do. I certainly have argued that um, law and doctrine supports more decentralization than we currently experience in most areas. And then in one area that's kind of current now is related to preemption. Um, uh, I think it it certainly creates a stronger argument toward decentralization, certainly than at least some are arguing for. Um, that is to say, some some folks are now arguing for much greater preemption of of state law uh, in the environmental space than I think uh, current law and doctrine justify. Even in some areas where I think the policy argument for centralization might actually be somewhat strong. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the law does. So, you know, so I'm usually in the position of saying the law supports more decentralization or should support more decentralization than we have. Um, there are some areas now relating to preemption where, I, where um, I'm somewhat flipped in that I think there are stronger policy arguments for centralized decision-making, but weaker legal arguments for it. Yeah. And, and, and it'd be fun to, to, to get into, um, into the, some of those preemption, uh, questions, um, maybe, in, maybe in a little bit, just sure. thinking about, um, you know, again, kind of just the big structure of, of us environmental law. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that is, 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 is interesting and, and you and others have noted is that, um, the structure of the of many of the of the laws, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, those are the, you know two of the big ones anyway. Um, it doesn't seem to allocate federal power where federal power is most justified, <laughs> and uh, seems doesn't seem to allocate power to the states where state where state authority is more most justified. And so, basically, there's uh, the federal government has a lot a really big role to play under the law. Um, w- with pollution that is primarily local in orientation. And um, it, let's just say at the very least, it has taken a very long time uh, to, to implement effective interstate um, 
uh, transboundary, you know, right. controls on transboundary pollution, even though that's an area where, uh, you know, uh, the federal government has a, has a, has an obvious and natural role. So, yeah. so, so, you know, this is peculiar, <laughs> uh, you know, I'd be curious your thoughts on that. Like wh- how does, how did that come about? Is it, are we just stuck with it? Or should, should we think about radically reforming the law to, to change that? Well, so there's a lot there in terms of in terms of how it came about. I mean, I, I've written some on this, and I have a, a book manuscript I'm trying to finish that that tells my version of this story. I mean, I think when um, the federal government really ramped up its presence in the environmental space in in you know beginning around in the late '60s and, in, and through the 1970s, there wasn't a lot of thought about jurisdictional choice. Um, there was rather um, a, a dramatic increase in the demand for governmental action to uh, reduce pollution and to protect environmental resources. And there was a dramatic increase at the state level. There was also a dramatic increase at the federal level. And there wasn't a lot of attention to, okay, how do we rationalize who does what? Um, and um and it's similarly on the constitutional side of things, which, as you know, I've written about. You know, there there were constitutional issues folks were focused on that the environmental laws were raising, um, but they weren't the federalism issues, right? So the Council on Environmental Quality publishes this book-length report on takings and how environmental law could um, be frustrated by takings claims. Um, the idea that that enumerated powers or sovereign immunity or commandeering or what have you would be obstacles mm-hmm. um, really wasn't or conditional spending or what have you, wasn't really thought about. Um, and so that was kind of an accident, I think, um, uh, about why we got it the way we did. I also think politically, you know, uh, as a consequence of the civil rights movement, there was a lot of skepticism about state and local governments. That was very well-deserved, right? The line I always use is, if, if states couldn't be trusted to protect portions of their own citizenry, why would we expect them to be particularly proactive about protecting environmental resources and, and, the, and the like? Um, you know, states, many states had shown themselves to be um, uh, some combination of, of um, incompetent or malicious when it came to fulfilling their obligations. And so arguments, oh, states can be trusted, really didn't have a lot of purchase at the time. And again, that I think that's very understandable and, 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 you know, given the time period, justifiable, right? Um, and, you know, today, the state-level interest in environmental protection is, is much different than it was then. And so what we might think states would do today is not what we might have thought states would have done in, say, the 60s and 70s. Um, so that's kind of how we got here. Um, you know, as you noted, um, for a long time, the federal government largely ignored or in some respects even frustrated efforts to deal with interstate issues. Um, that's changed some, um, especially under the Clean Air Act. Um, uh, the EPA has been more willing to use those authorities. Courts have been more willing to um, recognize the authority. Um, and so you've had um, uh, the SIP the call process and the Section 126 process and these various processes that allow um, downwind jurisdictions to get some degree of protection from upwind jurisdictions. There's been a lot more action there than there had been, um, a, a lot more efforts to control cross-state pollution. Um, you know, I'm not sure that that's the focus it should be or it hasn't reached – the proportional focus, I would argue, it should have in terms of what the EPA does with air pollution, but it, it certainly improved. Um, uh, and um, 
I, I think there's there's certainly the room for for doing more, um, both to deal with interstate pollution as well as to do some other things that I think the federal government has a, a comparative advantage in doing, um, which I would include into that a lot of um, data collection and, and, and scientific research about understanding both the nature of pollution problems and how we address and their consequences and then how we address them. You know, there are economies of scale in, in and um, there's no reason to, to make states duplicate that sort of research. And a lot of that work would actually also make it easier for states to play a larger role. Um, um, uh, in, in a little bit of my work, I've tried to pay a little, pay some attention to, to how is it the federal government can do things that will reduce the costs for, mm-hmm. for states at being more effective environmental stewards. Um, and there's room there. In terms of looking at what we do, as a practical matter, you know, I'm certainly not going to be given complete control over um, <laughs> environmental policy, uh, environmental law. Um, but also, you know, we're not likely to get revolutionary change, and we're not likely to get revolutionary change that um, is is you know perfectly well thought out. What I've argued for. Um, and is that it would be nice to create a mechanism whereby we could facilitate a reorientation of priorities. So I've argued for a mechanism where states could seek to essentially opt out of um, uh, federal supervision or superintendents or imposition of, of, of standards within the sta- within those states. Um, within the framework of the existing environmental laws, and the, my belief is, is that if states take that that opportunity and do so in a way that people find to be congenial and effective, well, then more states will follow suit. And if 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 some states take that opportunity and it, we decide it's a mistake, well, then um, we still have the existing uh, architecture of of environmental federal environmental law to fall back on. Um, uh, the other thing I would certainly do is if is you know if Congress could you know insofar as it's appropriating resources, you know we know that EPA never has the resources to do everything that the laws say EPA is supposed to be doing, and so the EPA is always engaged in some amount of triage. Um, I think Congress could certainly facilitate the process by um, uh, explicitly. Uh, devoting greater resources to those areas where um, the federal government has a comparative advantage, and and the, you know the two biggest buckets there would be things that have cross boundary um, effects. Um, uh, so air, you know, interstate air and water pollution, uh, and then um, increasing the knowledge re- uh, base and and technical capacity that would make. Uh, give states more tools and and more ability to do the things that are truly in their backyards more effectively. Um, you know, a, a lot could be done in the budget process just to put more money in those buckets and less money in some of the other buckets. Um, so those are the two things I would do uh, if it were up to me that I think are realistic. Um, if the last thing I'll say is um, it would also just help, I think, to have an EPA administrator – um, who, if they are talking about these issues, um, is actually following through in a somewhat consistent way. I mean, I've argued that um, 
for example, the Trump administration missed some opportunities in this regard. There was a lot of rhetoric about federalism in, 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 coming from the EPA. Um, but if you actually look at what it did, um, it was not a principled federalism agenda. It was kind of an ad hoc, we're against pollution control um, agenda, just cloaked in, in, in the rhetoric of federalism. And I think that's... You know, that that sort of thing's not helpful. Uh, it doesn't yield good policy, and it it doesn't help us. It doesn't help set the tone of thinking about okay, well, where do we need the federal government, and where can the federal government back off to some degree? Right. Yeah. No. It's. I mean, I, I can imagine it being very frustrating, actually, because <laughs> uh, you know, then then the whole what happens is is the the language around federalism gets associated with kind of a anti pollution control agenda yeah. that. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it would be very interesting to, it's kind of hard to imagine, but it would be very interesting as a political move for an administration, for an EPA administrator, for, you know, coming, even coming from the White House to say, we're going to ramp up our emphasis on, you know, interstate pollution, pollution that, you know, um, water pollution. We're going to focus on, you know, watershed management and, you know, where it crosses state boundaries. And we're going to focus on, um, you know, uh, pollutants that cross state boundaries. While at the same time, um, you know, we're going to bring the states in more in a more central role on, um, you know, pollutants that are these problems that are more local in nature. Um, it's it's just kind of hard to imagine either political party right now or the leadership of either political party. Um, being able to do that in a in a in a way that anybody would trust on <laughs> on either side, I think it's hard. I mean, I I do think that that um, I mean, I mean, the Trump administration is in some respects, I guess, sweet generous, but but uh, you know, I do think there were some opportunities there, but in both the Bush mm-hmm. administration and the Trump administration to try and do that. Um, you know, if if you are on the one hand saying, okay, the EPA is not going to be imposing such great pressure on certain states, well, then just you know let California do its thing, right? Mm-hmm. But um, don't don't at the same time try right. to reinterpret the Clean Air Act to um, uh, constrain what California is doing, or you know, in the case of the Trump administration, right, send these threatening letters saying, oh yeah, we finally noticed that you know you're not doing enough to mm-hmm. control particulate pollution in this part of California where there's no claim of any kind of transboundary effects, mm-hmm. but this is just an opportunity. I mean, it certainly looked like um, nothing more than an effort to beat up on California because it's California, and and that that clearly doesn't help, right? Um, yeah. uh, and, um, you know, I do think there are some opportunities there. I also think that, you know, at least in some parts of the country, I mean, I live in Ohio. Ohio is a fairly red state, um, but you know, Ohio cares a lot about the Great Lakes. cares a lot about um, uh, uh, maintaining and improving water quality. Um, uh, and you know, I don't think there's anything inconsistent with saying, you know, we don't want the EPA interfering with things that that are are localized issues. Um, but we would certainly like support and and r- obstacles to be removed when it comes to figuring out how we in Ohio can can ourselves do more for the Great Lakes, but also work cooperatively with other Great Lakes states to ensure these resources are protected. Um, you know, there will still be conflicts, right? When when the EPA says Ohio, you're you're 
spewing a lot of stuff that ends up in in New York and Vermont. Ohio's not going to like hearing that, but um, I, I would think there's there's actually more room for that if EPA isn't at the same time obsessing about something that doesn't have those sorts of effects. Um, and, you know, as I keep mentioning, if, if, if EPA at the same time is doing things that, in, that help increase state capacity, then there's less concern that, you know, Ohio is not dealing with some localized problems because they don't know any better or because they don't have the capacity. It's really a question of, of something else being prioritized more. Um, so I, Maybe I'm just too optimistic. I like to think there are opportunities <laughs> there. I, um, I suspect that you're more likely to see it from a, a Republican president, but maybe not. So, um, you know, I would argue that that the closest we've had to a real effort to to have meaningful push meaningful federalism um, in the environmental space probably occurred under the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Programs like the NEPS program. Um, um, you know, which didn't go as far as they could um, have. Um, uh, you know, I think we're we're a lot more positive than 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 much of what we've seen since um, from either party. So, so I hope the opportunities are there. I yeah. guess I would say. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, just as you mentioned, the Clinton administration they, they more broadly adopted a lot of language on federalism. There was a federalism executive order. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was a couple of things that they did. Um, again, you know, whether all that how that all that actually cashes out is a, a different question. But certainly, they were willing to talk about federalism in a way that, right. um, you know, it's interesting. Just it is interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so one question, you know, this, I mean, we could, we could keep talking about federalism. I actually would like to, because it is such an important component of, of uh, U.S. environmental law. One concern that, um, you know, my students will often raise when I talk about uh, environmental federalism, and you, you discussed as well when we were talking about just the kind of origins of the more nationally oriented system that we have now, is, you know, issues around kind of justice or mm-hmm. public choice failure or that kind of thing, where even, you know, uh, even if a harm is internalized within a state, within jurisdiction, obviously there's going to be some groups that are uh, more or less... Uh, um, you know, exposed to these harms, and that we are we might be worried about the state's willingness um, to you know to address harms when they fall on you know certain groups of people. And so I guess you know, and there's a lot of emphasis these days, a renewed emphasis on these kind of environmental justice mm-hmm. issues. So I'd be curious what your thoughts are. I, I, I find it hard to think about <laughs> these things. I mean, because you know they they do run kind of because then there's always like, well, how good is the federal government at addressing these exactly. issues and so on? Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. So I mean, so so some of my react responses might be predictable, and and then some I hope at least are. Or less so. So, I mean, the first question, I think, always has to be compared to what? I mean, yes, we might expect state governments, uh, in fact, we should expect state governments to often not do everything the way we would want them to. And we would expect government failure at the state level. But we also expect that at the federal level. And it, and um, I think that um, uh, I have found theoretical uh, uh, claims about why we would expect 
failure to be more systematic mm-hmm. at the state level than the federal level to be unconvincing. And I found the empirical evidence that there, that the failures are more systematic at the state level uh, to be lacking. Um, there are plenty of examples of federal environmental policy, including things done by the EPA and not, not things the EPA is, is forced to acquiesce to, but the EPA does itself that um, um, are, are, you know, perfect case studies of, of, of public choice and action and, and, and agencies, regulatory agencies doing the bidding of, of interest groups as opposed to those they're supposed to be helping. And one could throw in, this is the most recent example, the, um, the desire to increase the, the, the ethanol waiver to go up to E15, um, um, that, to, to try and reduce gas prices. I mean, that, environmentally, that's crazy. Um, and, the EPA's done that sort of thing a lot. Um, uh, the, the Clinton administration that we were just, that we were just praising um, had a similar ethanol giveaway that it tried to justify under the Clean Air Act that had that was thrown out in court. Um, and um, a lot of the you know if we're talking about things that affect that contribute to things like air, air urban air pollution, for example, mm-hmm. and we recognize that urban air pollution is not evenly distributed, we realize that these sorts of effects can have or these sorts of policies can have disproportionate effects on vulnerable communities, um, just like other ones. So I, there is the compared to what question that I think we have to ask. The second thing is um, when it comes to what well, we might loosely characterize as environmental justice concerns more broadly, the issue that I, the issues that I think are the most important, and this may be my, you know, the, the a function of, 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 um, uh, the normative framework that I tend to operate out of. I'm most concerned about autonomy and and choice and consent, um, and more so than I am about the 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 resulting distribution. Um, uh, wealthier communities are subject to less than poorer communities are, and that's true whether we're talking about environmental problems or any other social ill. Um, What's really problematic is when that's imposed as opposed to a trade-off. Um, and um, if you one looks at the history of environmental justice, one sees examples of poor communities um, uh, being imposed upon um, uh, other levels of government citing a waste site or landfill or um, diverting enforcement resources or whatever else in ways that are discriminatory or, if not in purpose, certainly in effect. Um, But you also see examples of communities seeking opportunities and being denied those opportunities. When I worked in D.C., um, there was a a big effort in Virginia to bar the importation of waste from New York. one of the Virginia mm-hmm. papers had published this picture of a landfill with a, that with with, a, with an "I Love New York" t- T-shirt kind of conveniently placed in the middle of the picture, and the, the Virginia legislature was going to pass this um, uh, this law, and, and you know I was involved in this issue a little bit because um, there were efforts at the federal level to authorize states to do this sort of to to impose these sorts of restrictions on on importation and exportation, and when so Virginia was considering this bill, um, the community where surrounding one of the landfills at issue um, showed up uh, at the state house to, and this was a, a predominantly minority community to say what the hell are you doing yes this facility is in our community but this facility is paying for things that you the state legislature aren't paying for it's providing resources that are going to help us from a healthcare standpoint education standpoint that you and the legislature aren't paying for why would you deny us this opportunity if this is something that that our community actually 
chose and consented to. And, 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 you know, there were powerful speeches by, by pastors and others from the community uh, objecting to um, this policy that was going to be done in the name of environmental justice, but that was actually disempowering to the community. So I worry a lot more about kind of what's happening. You know, is, is a community making a choice based on that community's values and its priorities, or is that community being imposed upon? I see much greater justification for uh, imposition in the second context. And related to that, you know, when it comes to kind of what the federal government's role should be more broadly, um, you know, there, there, our constitutional framework does recognize, uh, it has recognized since what we often call the second founding, that um, the federal government has a lot more power to intervene when um, in, in what we would otherwise consider to be state or local affairs, when state and local governments are not observing and protecting the rights of, of portions of the citizenry. And that can occur in the environmental context. Um, and if it does, I think that's a justification for federal intervention. But it doesn't justify to me kind of broad prohibitions on certain sorts of activities or activities purely based on uh, estimations of the impact, it justifies more targeted interventions where we see that that communities are being imposed upon as opposed to making choices that we might disagree with. Um, and that's, all, you know, it can be a hard balance to draw, but I think I think it's an important one. And I think if one looks at, at the way environmental burdens have been imposed um, disproportionately, one can, I think, try and... I, separate out where um, it's been a function of, of communities being imposed upon or being deceived or what have you. And, and, and I don't mind the federal intervention in those, in those contexts, um, provided we have reasons to believe the federal intervention will in fact be better. Um, you know, there are um, times where we, where we have to worry about that. And there are even examples of, of interest groups manipulating these sorts of concerns and narratives for their own, um, for their own uh, pecuniary interests. Um, and, and we have to be careful about that, right? The, the, the regulatory process, the administrative process is, you know, systematically advantages mm -hmm. well-resourced interests. Um, some work that Wendy Wagner's done has shown this in terms of who participates in the process. Um, I think it's somewhat intuitive in the sense that, you know, the average person is much more likely to know how to show up at a local town meeting than they are to know how to file a petition with EPA or to, to affect a rulemaking or what have you. Um, and so we want to be careful about thinking the answer to these problems is to shift thing, shifting questions to an administrative regulatory process because that process isn't going to be particularly equitable um, and is manipulable. Um, right, that we, we know that if an interest group thinks it can cloak its agenda in, in more progressive garb, it will do so. And um, we have examples of that happening. Um, um, you know, the, the, there was a fight between cement kilns and, and hazardous waste incinerators and one group, one side paid to create all these quote unquote, you know, local groups formed around the kitchen table and um, to file lawsuits and to file administrative complaints and so on. And in the context of litigation, it eventually came out that, you know, it was, this was totally paid for by, um, by the other side. This had nothing to do with local communities really objecting 
um, to one source of emissions versus the other. It was, you know, the weaponization of these sorts of concerns by economically motivated parties. And um, we have to at least be concerned about that sort of thing because it happens. Yeah. And it's an interesting, you know, again, just thinking broadly about kind of political framing and and because that's obviously the lens that through which all policy is refracted is, you know, to a, an agenda that was to say, we're going to focus on interstate issues, you know, big picture things and environmental justice (laughs) Um, is, and then, you know, where there aren't environmental justice concerns in particular, then, you know, we'll be more amenable to, to states um, kind of to de- decentralization more generally. So it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, uh, would be an interesting agenda. Um, I don't think there, yeah, there's, it's not one that either political party has adapted so far. It's a, ma- oh, yeah. it's a, it's, a, it's clearly a mesh between yes. the two. Um, and sometimes those could be really successful and sometimes they just, they never come about. Right. Um, one, um, thing that I thought we might return to is the the point on experimentation and I and I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts so I you, you mentioned that I've, I've written a little bit of uh, skepticism about experimentation um, there's kind of two parts to that so one is um, you know in this paper I talk about uh, concerns that uh, people can learn good things or they can learn bad things from experimentation right you um, uh, uh, powerful um, organizations can learn how to exploit <laughs> uh, political processes yeah. to, to gain success uh, just as well as um, policymakers can learn. Um, but one thought, uh, one concern I think that there has been, that's not just mine, many others have, have discussed, is and this has to do with with states as the kind of driver of policy, mm-hmm. is that you? Can, it's actually very, very hard to learn anything from state variation, which I'm going to call variation rather than experimentation, because mm-hmm. um, experimentation kind of uh, implies like a controlled environment, <laughs> right? Like where you try one thing and you hold other things constant. And that's the kind of the problem with states is states select into what their policies are going to be. And so it's very just hard to learn because everything's confounded because you're selecting into the treatment or you're selecting into the, uh, into the policy. And um, you can imagine a coordinated regime where, you know, a bunch of states get together or the federal government for that matter, and randomly assign policies to different states or something like that to see um, what their effects were. We don't do that. It's a little hard to imagine us doing that in the states, although we would learn a lot if we did. Um, So, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this problem of, of selection um, when states are the, are the, are the, are the ones who are, you know, kind of making decisions about the policies to implement and the ways that that interferes with our ability to actually learn from this variation that we that we see well i mean i agree it's it's a problem it's a complicating factor as is the fact that states are not equal in terms of their preferences um mm-hmm. um so it's not you know it's so my, it's my claim is not that oh california will do something and if it works oh then every state will rush to do what california did right. because some states will look at what california does and say no we don't we don't want to do that right. um so it, you know it's imperfect right um i i i recognize that um and you know another complicating factor is that the, the federal presence um in so many environmental areas including areas where we would expect states to have a comparative advantage, um, distorts what states do. And I think it distorts what they do um, both as a practical matter, but also politically. And I've, you know, I, I have a, uh, I've written a paper that has a model that, 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 that documents how um, federal, even partial federal involvement in a field can 
prevent states from doing things they would have done otherwise that would actually increase the overall level of environmental protection. And, you know, it's, it's, type of, it's, a, it's a crowding out sort of um, mm-hmm. model. Uh, and so I, I agree all that's complicated. And, and now, I, I do think that, that is imp- one thing that's important to note is that from the empirical literature we have, which is not great, but it's a lot better than you one would know from from looking at law reviews. That is to say, the vast majority of empirical work in in economics and political science on these questions um, appears nowhere in in in, mm-hmm. in law reviews. Um, unfortunately, um, suggests that that some of the downside risks that we're worried about, things like race to the bottom, we find very little evidence of, and we find areas in which we actually find the opposite pattern that may be historically contingent, i.e. a function of a 21st century environmentally mm-hmm. aware populace and is not not a claim that we would have seen that absent a federal involvement in, this, in, in, in the 70s and 80s and so on. Um, we also see um, in areas where the federal government is not involved um, some evidence of replication of policies um, in neighboring states, in, in areas where we would expect states to be very sensitive to um, um, whether or not policies are doing what the states expect them to do or want them to do. Um, so uh, Paul Teske has a book, Regulation in the States, that documents this in a couple of areas, including some environmental areas. Uh, and the effect's not huge, um, but it shows that, you know, one, one Midwestern state does something for groundwater and it, it seems to be cost-effective in producing what the state wants um, the likelihood that its neighbors do something similar goes up. Um, we're not entirely sure why. That is to say, it's been very hard to document what the precise mechanism mm-hmm. of that is. Um, but um, we do find we do see evidence that's suggestive of that. Um, you know, one reason I, I'm I'm skeptical of kind of the let's centralize everything and, and plan the experiments is, you know, some of the reason you get the variation is because different people want and try different things. And so you're not going to get that same impetus from, from a centralized location. Um, uh, a lot of it, I think, comes from, you know, a state deciding that it wants um, a, a different uh, combination of goods than it had. So, I mean, just to take Virginia, where you are, I mean, there was a period of time where Virginia was much more agricultural culturally oriented and much more solicitous of agricultural interests and say meat packers and and the like um and you know when i lived in virginia that was when um especially in northern virginia the the tech boom was going on and a lot of the new voters coming into virginia um wanted economic prosperity but didn't want uh, a state that was just going to give the 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 uh, meat processing plants whatever it is they wanted and so virginia had to figure out, okay, how can we provide the environmental uh, amenities and and the level of environmental protection that this new influx of highly educated affluent voters and the companies that want to employ them want without destroying our economic base. And so there's pressure to come up with something new that perhaps reconciles that trade-off between economic and environmental performance that that might otherwise be limiting. And I, I don't, you only get that from a bottom-up, or it's it's hard to replicate that if it's not coming in a bottom-up way. And um, uh, again, the claim is not that every state that deals with that and struggles with that is going to get it right. Um, but it it 
I believe that we're more likely to get it right more often in ways that we're ultimately satisfied with um, that way than the alternative, um, um, which is, again, the compared to what point right there. Um, and again, I think when you look at things like fracking and other things, you, you see the same sort of thing, right? Um, um, in Ohio, the, the, the environmental and other effects of fracking that became really salient and important in Ohio in the local communities where we saw a lot of hydraulic fracturing were different than what the national activists were focused on. Um, and arguably far more important for quality of life and environmental protection. I mean, a lot of and stuff that would, might not have been obvious, you know, roads. Mm-hmm. You have these areas where the roads were not built for the volume of truck traffic they were suddenly exposed to. That that's a public safety issue. That's a water quality issue from runoff. I mean, it 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 it, it, it can be an air pollution issue if you, if you're dramatically increasing uh, air pollution sources in the area. Um, that's not what national folks wanted the EPA to focus on. But that's stuff that 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 made a huge difference. Noise. Um, uh, big issue, uh, light, uh, at night, um, during drilling operations can be a big issue. I mean, and, um, a state like Ohio that wanted, um, hydraulic fracturing to occur, um, uh, had to figure out how to deal with those, those issues, um, how to deal with, um, uh, maintaining, uh, for example, uh, road infrastructure to prevent the environmental harms of, of, that would result from the degradation of that infrastructure. That knowledge and understanding and focus on that could not have occurred. Now, just to use fracking, fracking as a last example, and to return to something we brought up earlier, um, Ohio was not going to care about fracking's contribution to methane emissions and mm-hmm. the effect on the global atmosphere. It was not going to be concerned about whether or not um, there were emissions um, from those oper- from those operations that were affecting. Um, uh, uh, you know, Pennsylvania or New York or what have you. And, and and that's where you would expect that those bottom-up pressures and knowledge creation to fail in a systematic way. That to me is is kind of what where where I would flip the presumption for for you know being bottom-up versus top-down, because we have reason to believe that the failures won't be kind of occasional, but will actually be systematic. And 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 that should affect the way we we think about it. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, part of what has affected the way we think about this this set of issues is um around learning and 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 all that is that you know the original kind of Brandeisian metaphor of laboratories of democracy, I think, was just very inapt. Sure. <laughs> uh, of course, I've had the, we've had some time to think it over, um, and because states aren't laboratories, right? right. They're they're, they're and the 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 analogy of experimentation or the term experimentation, I would think we should be talking about innovation rather sure, than that's experimentation. Fair. That's fair. Innovation, discovery. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I mean, I think the discovery part is part of it, right? Because because part of what we're learning is what matters. I mean, I've argued, and some people find this convincing, some don't. Um, that you look at a lot of environmental issues, and our discovery of the nature of that problem, and why that problem mattered, and why we should do something about it, for most environmental issues, occurred on the front lines at the local level first, right? Um, uh, uh, state wetland regulation began before federal regu- wetland regulation. Local wetland regulation began before state wetland regulation. Private efforts to preserve uh, Oh, habitat for migratory waterfowl, um, which wasn't at the time even thought of as wetlands because we didn't call them wetlands back then. They were swamps and fens and marshes mm-hmm. and whatever. And it was even before that. And 
part of what that reflects, I think, is is a is a bottom up. I guess you could characterize it as a Hayekian discovery process. I totally agree and take your point. It's not experimentation. It's not laboratory. It's not something controlled um, in in that way or, or or systematized in that way. It's really more of a of a discovery process that results from people being aware of the world around them, which and we tend to be more aware of our more immediate circumstances, um, and that that environmental. The history of environmental law is filled with uh, examples of that trickling up. Uh, and you could tell a similar story with air pollution and and the history of the progressive smoke control movement, which mm-hmm. um, had largely been forgotten. I mean, a, a couple of folks have – there's been some recent work documenting this history, um, which is fascinating, which is all about local communities realizing, hey, wait a second, um, you know, where we cite uh, factories matters <laughs> – um, how we produce, how we power our rail lines matters for our local community. Uh, and that was long before people were thinking about it as a broader national issue. But again, not experimentation so much as bottom-up discovery and innovation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting that now that you raise that is that there's – Something I'm not sure this is a this isn't a fully baked idea, but there's something about where we discover the um, the harm, mm-hmm. and you know where it will be um, best addressed. So, just for example, you know, climate change is not something. You know, the relationship between greenhouse gas emissions and the, and the local climate is not right. something that anyone is going to be able to figure out on their own. Um, depleting the ozone layer is not something that a local community can figure out. Um, you're just not going to observe it because Agreed. there's no feedback no, between what you're doing, right? And so, so that's just interesting that you know, whereas a local community can tangibly see local benefits of preserving wetlands or moving where, um, you know, uh, adopting pollution control on, you know, some kind of stationary source, there's a immediate feedback there. Where, as in the case of climate change, just as you were mentioning with respect to methane, even a potent greenhouse gas like methane, it's not like a local community is going to see the effects themselves of their methane emissions because they're spread out over the whole planet. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and I've argued that um, one of the reasons we have seen over the last 20 years so much state-level experimentation on climate is not because states can do much about climate change on their right. own or do much about the local climate effects until very recently when, when adaptations become more of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather, what I've argued is, is it's been a function of two things, right? One is there is a, de- a demand uh, for environmental action um, at the state level. And there are both uh, economic and political reasons um, why uh, state-level policymakers uh, sh- have an incentive to focus on areas where the federal government is doing less, mm-hmm. independent of whether or not it, that's a smart policy thing to do. And so I've argued that's why um, uh, you've seen so much state-level innovation on climate change, because um, they can't, they don't have the same degree of room to innovate and uh, to, to, to be active in a meaningful way on other, er- other things, because the federal government has such a large presence. And even if a state could do something that helps on the margin, the ability politically to get credit for that marginal improvement in an area that's already occupied by the federal government is so small that that what policymaker is going to to do that and again i have a model that you know tries to 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 formalize the observation but um but that i've argued that's why that happened now you know we still may 
discover interesting things about um, uh, how to uh, help mitigate climate change as a result of, of this innovation and these efforts. Um, uh, but I do think it's kind of been misplaced in that, you know, in that the federal government has done so little in an area where it ha- clearly has a comparative advantage as uh, compared to state and local governments. Um, uh, but in its absence, you know, state and local governments have kind of filled that that vacuum. Um, uh, and it's kind of, so we've kind of had a, ba- it, the process has kind of been operating almost in the inverse of the way we would like it to, or right. the way I would like it to at least. Right, right. I mean, when, you know, this kind of maybe just, uh, just again, thinking kind of like really big picture kind of questions um, in, in this in this area is you, you mentioned state and local governments, you know, mm-hmm. we, you know, and that and that's true, right? There's there's multiple levels of decentralization in the yep. U.S. The, the Constitution, you know, has the, the, you know, obviously the states have a particular status in the Constitution that, you know, counties or cities don't. Um, I'm, you know, we're not going to be revising that element of the Constitution anytime soon. But I'm curious what your what your thoughts are on kind of federalism versus localism. You know, kind of decentralization more broadly, because we do sometimes see states interfering with the ability of localities yeah. to um, to experiment. Well, not, let's not use that word anyway. To innovate or to right. try different things, um, or just to adopt different policies based on local preferences or whatever. Um, and it, states have always struck me actually to be honest with you as somewhat peculiar yep. uh, policymaking units right that cities and um, counties or or regions um, are kind of more natural yep. uh, we have the system we have but I'd just be curious what your thoughts are more generally on you know is there anything that we can do to encourage more localism or encourage more de- decentralization or, or are we happy with states as the as the kind of decentralized uh, agent, you know, you know, default in our in our system. Yeah, I mean, it kind of it depends. I mean, it, we, those are the lines we're stuck with. Um, you know, I think that greater, you know, for most issues, a presumption of greater state leadership as opposed to federal leadership, uh, you know, again, I, I think is justified, not because the states are the best units, but because for a, I would argue a large proportion of environmental problems, they are better units than the federal government. And they're better units in two directions, right? One, because they're smaller, and so the, the possibility of more local uh, innovation and, and, and leadership is possible, but also because if we're talking about a regional problem, um, we might be able to assemble states um, mm-hmm. in a way that's still preferable than it being a national issue. So we see this around the Great Lakes. We see this with the, with the Chesapeake Bay Compact. Um, we see this with things like... Um, um, uh, the Lake Tahoe Compact, um, and you know, on my research agenda, uh, not that I'm going to get to anytime soon, is trying to think more about are there ways of of um, uh, augmenting what we do in terms of regional stuff, where where mm-hmm. where we're, where the states aren't too big but too small. Um, your question was about where states are too big. You know, as a policy matter, um, my preference is. Um, applying the same sort of presumption that, you know, as long as localities aren't exporting harms or externalizing harms onto their neighbors uh, downstream or downwind, I would like to let them do their thing. And again, in part of that is because different communities are going to have different priorities. Um, um, And, uh, you know, especially when we're talking about land use, um, there is no one size fits all that makes sense. And, And I think we benefit from, um, different communities being able to have different priorities. Um, 
I also think that where local communities are given autonomy and control, they often do discover and innovate in ways that that have important environmental benefits. Um, as a legal matter, um, the extent to which that's viable really varies from state to state. Mm-hmm. Because you know, some states have have uh, a tradition of, uh, and a doctrine of home rule. Some do not. Um, the the details of how home rule op- actually um, is operationalized can vary. Um, so it, legally, that can be hard. Um, um, but um, uh, you know, in principle, I think that that. Um, uh, it's a good it's a good thing and I think that that you know you see um, you know, when you look at things like you know ballot initiatives for green space and the like you see that all you know the extent to which community local communities are willing to make environmental protection a priority is is often higher than we give them credit for um, we just don't you know we we just we we channel that energy into some very narrow, Spaces, right? So that you know, so you can do a green space initiative. You might not be able to do other sorts of things. Um, so, you know, as a policy matter, I, I would I would love to facilitate more localism, um, you know, as well as more as more uh, private efforts where where they can happen. I think when you look at things like um, ever, you know, the the um, was it the American? Uh, I'm not going to forget their name. The, the 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 group that's that's trying to restore the Great American Prairie, um, mm-hmm. largely through purchases. Um, you look at the history of of land trusts and the like um, here in Ohio, the Western Reserve Land Trust. Um, there are a lot of opportunities there that we could facilitate as well um, that build upon localism in a lot of cases. Um, I think we could definitely emphasize that a lot more. And in many cases, that would be facilitating local communities to do far more than they do now and, and to be far more protected than they do now. And um, and we learn from that, right? Because when communities do that in a way that doesn't cut off economic opportunity and the like, uh, I would like to think that other communities would then want to follow those models. Yeah. Um, so I, there's maybe a, like a we t- something we raised earlier. I, I, I didn't want to totally to drop it. So it, yeah. maybe now would be a good time for us to return to it is this um, – you you discuss the kind of you know more legal question. We've been talking a lot about policy questions. That tends to be my orientation. <laughs> is um, around uh, something actually a bit of a bit of innovation coming from a lot of municipalities. Mm-hmm. It, are this is this litigation over climate damages and and suing oil companies? And there was a recent development, the Second Circuit decision that um, you know was pretty was pretty much closed the door um, in that circuit for these kinds of claims. And and one of the things that there is a, you know, it's a little in the weeds, but just to kind of get it on the table, you know, there's a, there's a, a Supreme Court decision that found that the federal common law um, was uh, displaced by the Clean Air Act, if, you know, uh, in such a way that um, states actually in that case were not going to be able to use the federal common law as a way of um, yes, uh, litigating cl- the question of climate damages, um, or actually in that case, they were looking for injunctive relief from right. the courts. Right. The, um, but what was kind of funky about this second uh, circuit decision is that the municipalities were bringing these claims under state law, yep. and the second circuit somehow got us to essentially um, a, a, presum- a, a preemption-like result. Yep. And I guess the question is, you've written a little bit about this is, you know, this is kind of a, a technical um, 
uh, a technical matter, but I'm, I think it's worth ex- maybe explaining a little bit of the stakes of the difference between, like, say, the federal common law and the and state common law displacement versus preemption. Sure. And then some maybe maybe just what your thoughts are about what happened in the Second Circuit. Yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of the Second Circuit opinion. Um, I've made I've made bad jokes about the fact that it came out on <laughs> April first. Um, yeah. uh, but um, so yeah, so you know, generally, you know, for the last hundred years or so. Um, courts have, federal courts have taken the position that federal common law is disfavored. The idea is that federal courts are not um, common law courts that are really supposed to be in the position of discovering or developing or, we we can have that's a whole separate discussion, um, a common law. That's something that occurs at the state level and that where federal law is necessary for a rule of decision um, the preferences for legislation. And so a consequence of that notion is this idea of displacement, which is um, in the past where where when two states have a dispute with one another, they might be able to um, raise a federal common law claim. The idea is that if there's any legislation in that space, that that federal common law has been displaced in favor of whatever the statute does or does not do. And so that the Supreme Court is, has... First said that about water pollution in um, I'm going to forget the year. I guess in 1981 in the um, uh, in the 80s, and and has now said the same thing um, for uh, air pollution. Um, and doctrinally, that's that part's I think unobjectionable. It's an um, eight-zero decision in the in the Supreme Court. Right, right. We, once the court said that about 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 the Clean Water Act, there's no reason why that wouldn't be true of the Clean Air Act as well. Um, the preemption question is a different question because preemption is always about state law, and and that can mean preemption of state regulations adopted pursuant to state legislation. It can also mean state common law, so state tort law and, and nuisance law and the like. Um, and generally, there we've we've adopted a presumption against preemption. The idea that states are, you know, one consequence of state sovereignty is that states are themselves sources of law, both um, both both positive law or public law in the terms of you know, statutes and, and regulations, but also in terms of the common background common law. And a lot of municipalities have started filing these suits, claiming, "Hey, look, we are spending money dealing with the consequences of climate change. We are dealing with flooding. We are dealing with um, uh, the, the changes in, in air pollution, changes in." Um, uh, uh, other changes that we have to deal with. I mean, weather-related, uh, flooding-related, and, and air pollution-related are some of the, the big ones. But we're investing money to deal with the, the 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 current and expected effects of climate change. And so they're filing tort suits against um, uh, those that produce fossil fuels or those that market fossil fuels and so on. And they're, you know, these are aggressive state law claims. Um, and they may or may not be, you know, from from a tort law standpoint, they may or may not ultimately be good claims and strong claims uh, or not. And there may be questions down the road about whether or not recovery can be obtained for actions that occurred out of state. Those are all, I think, legitimate questions. What occurred in the Second Circuit, and, I, and I've been critical of, is federal courts saying um, the very nature of the claim is inherently federal because it's climate change. And so, therefore... Um, you cannot bring the claim at all, even though you are basing it and grounding it in in state common law. And I think that that's 
um, doctrinally problematic um, under preemption law, under a particular case called um, that I always mispronounce, International Paper versus Ouellette. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, I also think in the Second Circuit case, it was also based on a kind of just a, a gross mischaracterization of the nature of state authority to deal with environmental problems. And the New York case was filed in federal court, so there was a clean holding on the preemption question. There, there, all these other cases that get even more complicated than we've already addressed because they're filed in state court. Then the question is removal and the way preemption claims apply in 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 removal. You know, it it unless you're a real civil procedure maven, it, it'll make your head hurt. Um, but I, you know, I I've argued that you know there um, to argue preemption. You really have to argue that Congress came in and told states they had to stop. And we see that in some areas of law, uh, not very often in environmental law, right? We see it like mm-hmm. with regulation of automobiles, right? Only, you know, uh, we see it um, at, at ta- standards for oil tankers. Um, there's a there's mm-hmm. a preemptive. Um, some pesticide regulation is preemptive. Typically, it's product regulation like that that's preemptive if we're going to generalize. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but dealing with pollution and its effects, uh, we generally don't preempt. Um, and we place a high burden on on those claiming preemption to show that Congress has, in fact, preempted. And I've certainly argued that, that while I would argue that dealing with climate change at, at the national level is better than dealing with it at the state and local level and would support policy efforts in that regard, um, unless and until Congress steps up to that plate, um, there's no basis for holding these these suits as preempted, and um, they will rise or fall. I would argue, or should rise and fall on their own internal merits as a matter of state tort law, um, and 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 courts should not be welcoming to the claims of oil company defendants that that these claims are preempted. Um, even if you know, in my perfect world, would I you know would I would I trade a carbon tax? Um, uh, for, among other things, preemption of at least some of these sorts of claims? Yeah, I probably would. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a legislative judgment. Right, that's a, different, <laughs> that's, a, that's a different question. Right. Um, so that's kind of what's going on there. And, and it's interesting because you have folks that we often expect to be uh, sympathetic to uh, federalism arguments to, in fact, being sympathetic to uh, what I would argue are fairly aggressive federal federal power arguments because they they rely on this assumption that even when the federal government has done very little it should be casting this big shadow across uh, state level innovation and um you know while some of my friends on the right sometimes forget you know litigation including aggressive tort litigation is a very innovation discovery-oriented process. Mm-hmm. Um, just like there can be good and bad regulations, there can be good and bad litigation, and we learn something about it, and litigation can be information-forcing in ways that um, uh, that we should be reluctant to, to squish. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, that's, I mean, there's some interesting stuff to, to talk about with respect to, to litigation, actually, and the kind of tort system and how that feeds in. But we're, we're, we're running out of time. I don't know if we can, we can get into that. So I, I just have kind of one, one final question sure. for you. You've been generous with, with your time. That actually, you know, what the comment that you just made kind of circles us back to the, where we kind of started, which is the degree to which, 
you know, folks' views on on federalism tends to uh, to go with the wind, um, depending on on the outcomes of particular um, disputes. And I guess that kind of just leads me to the to my final question for you, which is. You know, we circled around this issue of kind of uh, uh, polarization on environmental issues and, um, and, you know, the degree to which that, that's hampered our ability to, to make progress kind of anywhere. And I guess I would just be curious about your thoughts uh, at the intersection of kind of political polarization and uh, questions of federal versus state versus local, um, you know, authority. Is there a way in which, you know, that we thinking about thinking about, you know, this question of centralization and decentralization or changes in how we, um, you know, have kind of turned that particular dial might, uh, you know, uh, might have implications for for polarization or even some potential um, to depolarize what has become an extremely polarized set of issues. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I wish I knew how to, how to facilitate depolarization. I mean, I do tend to think that, that a principled federalism can help depolarized because it can lessen the stakes. Mm. Um, you know, that that other people are living under a set of rules that they like but I don't is, right, there, there's less at risk there than when I'm fighting with other people over the rules we all have to live under. Mm-hmm. And again, that doesn't work for every issue and we do have to worry about, you know, we, we do as a country have a baseline commitment to to a certain degree of rights protection and 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 human dignity that that is kind of off the table and non-negotiable but but you know with there is a broad space where i think we can we that that decentralizing helps depolarize and conversely um unnecessary centralization Magnif- magnifies polarization, but I don't. I don't want to overstate the claim, right? I don't want to say like you know, oh, if we got this right, we'd solve our problems. It's, it's you know, these are the effects that I think on the margin, decisions to central, you know, decisions to centralize on the margin, I think are going to tend to increase polarization. Decisions to decentral to decentralize are on the margin going to tend to turn the dial a little bit the other way, but but I I don't want to suggest that. That um, the question about centralization is is the most important variable or the most important factor. Uh, you know, uh, I I don't even know how one would measure that claim, um, let alone defend it. But um, but I think that that I think that's that's part of it. And I think that that if you know we we if we could reorder you know the way we approach environmental policy, so that the things that are centralized are the things where we can recognize we can't address otherwise. That might help because I do think that when you look at at, at jurisdictions that ha- have very polarized positions on some environmental questions, do tend to be somewhat less polarized when it's in their own backyard, mm-hmm. right? I, may, I gave the example earlier about you know Ohio being a fairly red state, uh, a state that um, you know uh, the same attorney general in Ohio that loves suing the federal government for overregulating is also very uh, happy to celebrate um, tangible on the ground environmental enforcement actions that are actually reducing pollution and and holding polluters accountable in the state and i don't think there's a conflict there right because um uh and so i you know i do think that there there are opportunities there um I, i'm not going to say that that you know it's it's the key to some great political victory or anything else but 
but I do think there are opportunities there to to take advantage of the fact that that when we are closer to the 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 consequences there's less room for the ideological polarization and 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 there has to be a greater focus okay what's actually going to going to work and for those environmental problems where we are dealing with you know quality of life on the ground you know i think that that has an effect when we're talking about environmental issues that are kind of much more value driven uh, that's harder right because then we're bringing all the 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 ideological and other normative stuff that that feeds into polarization in other contexts in ways that I, I, I wish I knew how to, how to deal with better. Um, so that's a kind of answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, with something as, as complicated and as multi-causal as, as political polarization, I think uh, maybe making changes on the margin is actually a huge, <laughs> is a huge, uh, uh, huge opportunity. So um, yeah, so thanks so much, Jonathan, for uh, taking the time to chat with me. This was a, was a really fun conversation. My pleasure. Happy to do it.